0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn.
2: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, Positively FedEx.
0: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, it's Iowa Caucus Eve, but the traditional presidential campaign kickoff this year is anything but. In 2024, the starting line on the road to the Republican nomination is an
3: icy one negative 20, negative 22, and brave it for a few hours, uh, and, and go and caucus for me, uh, I'll be in there in that White House for eight years fighting
4: for you.
0: With sub-zero wind chill temperatures predicted for Monday.
3: We have
4: the worst weather, I
3: guess, uh, in recorded history, but maybe that's good, because our people are more committed than anybody else.
0: But with the once robust GOP field shrinking, few candidates are still committed. I don't play for a second. I've never played for a second. I'm not gonna start now. What is it about Trump among GOP primary voters that has him more than 50 points over any other candidates in our new national poll? We'll have some striking insights into voters' thoughts on Trump's talk and his policies. We'll talk to GOP presidential contender and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin will also join us. And we'll talk to White House National Security Council coordinator John Kirby about the escalation of tensions in the Mideast and the growing controversy over Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's secret hospitalization. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today not with what you do know, that it's very cold outside for most of the country and that former President Trump is looking strong in Iowa based on our reporting and state polls. We want to instead look at the bigger picture, that all three top GOP contenders begin the year with a lead over President Biden in our CBS News poll. Former President Trump is up to 50 to 48%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has a three point margin, 51 to 48 percent. Those two are both within the margin of error. But it's former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley who has the biggest lead, eight points, over President Biden at 53 to 45 percent. We turn now to CBS News Executive Director of Elections and Surveys, Anthony Salvanto, to tell us more. Anthony, good to have you here. Good morning. That's a pretty dramatic advantage for Haley over Biden. Why is she outperforming him instead of Trump or DeSantis?
5: Republican voters think it's Trump who has the best chance for them to beat Biden. Maybe they haven't seen this poll yet. But look, Haley is on qualities that people say they want in a president, better or about even with Biden. Things like empathy, things like ability to compromise and toughness, where she leads and does just as well as the other two, DeSantis and Trump, right? The other part of this, Margaret, is just on straight demographics. She does well with women, she does better with independence, she does better getting people to cross over from Biden 2020. To her, all of that reflects some of Biden's underperformance with his Democratic base. And then finally, this point on the economy. We still see voters telling us really by two to one that they feel like they might be worse off under Biden than better off financially. And that's important because it reflects this ongoing sting of what's happened with him and his ratings after inflation. Even though voters are starting to say like they think the economy is starting to stabilize, a little bit of improvement there. He's not getting the political benefit from that, partly because it's about the rate of change. Inflation is slowing, but prices are still high. Right. And that doesn't look like it's his argument is resonating that well right now.
0: But voters may not see this hypothetical head-to-head matchup um, because your poll found President Trump with his biggest lead among GOP primary voters nationwide thus far this cycle, 55 points. What's driving it?
5: Indeed. Well, look, some of this is he just spans different parts of the party and has appeal. So for Republicans who want a tax cut, he's their guy. For Republicans who are MAGA, who want a more combative approach, who want that culture war, he's their guy. And part of it, just by the numbers, is he's got more strong supporters than anybody else, people who say they're considering only him, who will not change their minds. And that throughout this, this campaign has put a floor under his support, that's been really hard for any other candidate to shake. And look, that part in some sense is not news, Mm -hmm. but contextually, as we go into this primary season, it's important to then reiterate that this is something and a phenomenon with this showing loyalty to an individual that we really have not seen for people in polling in US politics other than for Donald Trump and that MAGA base.
0: So what about the content of what he is saying and his platform? I mean, he constantly says, I am your retribution, for example. What do voters think that means?
5: Well, the important thing here is comparing people who call themselves MAGA to the rest of the party, because the MAGA base is much more likely to say they like that idea, the idea of punishing or going after his political opponents if he gets into office. Um, These are the kinds of things that get the other campaigns to talk about authoritarianism, things that are potential threats to democracy. But in, in the eyes of the MAGA base, they bought the narrative that the election was stolen. They want to see pardons for the January 6th rioters. And all of that means to them that they've had something taken from them and they're trying to push back against it. And Donald Trump is their vehicle for that.
0: He's channeling something there. Yes. But what about uh, rhetoric like his remarks that immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country?
5: A majority of Republicans say they agree with his statements. And we looked at it both ways when we told them Donald Trump said it even more agreed with it. So he has that effect. But they agreed with it anyway, even when we didn't note that Donald Trump had said it. And look, that's important because it also speaks tremendous. It it is. And I, I think it speaks not just to issues with the border, but also to larger issues of race in this campaign. And I'll point it out this way. When we ask people what they think of diversity efforts in the U.S., the people feel that diversity efforts in the U.S. have gone too far, are overwhelmingly voting for Trump. The people who feel that they haven't gone far enough are overwhelmingly for Biden. And that tells you what that role of race is in the campaign. And that's an important dynamic, not just when we look at the strong Trump support, but what sets up one of the key narratives going forward in the 24 campaign.
0: Fascinating. Anthony Salvanto. Thank you. Thank you. Our CBS Mornings anchor Tony DiCopel is in Iowa and spoke yesterday to former Governor Nikki Haley.
3: Iowans sometimes make their decision very late. Yes. This is still a, an open ball game. Yes. What's your closing argument to them?
6: Yeah, I mean, the closing argument is let's get rid of the chaos. Yeah. Let's leave the old names to the past and let's move forward with a new conservative leader that's going to get our country back on track. We can't go through four more years of chaos. We can't go through Trump or Biden anymore. Everybody, 75% of America has said they don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. So I think we need to go forward and give them something else. And that's what we're trying to do is give them a new option.
3: I've been talking to voters for the past two weekends and a lot of voters like you very much. Yeah. But they say they're hoping you'll be a VP this time around. A VP do you-know-who. How do you feel about that?
6: I don't play for a second. I've never played for a second. I'm not going to start now. I'm not interested in being vice president. I'm running to be president, and I'm running to win, and we will.
3: What's your message to those voters in particular who like you enough to be VP, but right now are still stuck on Donald Trump?
6: Well, I think, look, if you want four more years of chaos, that's what you're going to get. But what's more concerning is, if you look at those head-to-head polls, Trump and Biden are pretty much even. It's going
0: to be a nail-biter of an election. We're going to be holding our breath. I don't want a President Kamala Harris. To talk more about the state of the contest, we turn to our CBS News political team in Iowa, Ed O'Keefe, Robert Costa, and Major Garrett. They're at GOP headquarters in Des Moines, and Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report is here with me in studio. Ed, I want to start with you. What's driving the decision of these Republican voters in Iowa?
7: Well, Margaret, happy Sunday to you. If you talk to Trump voters, they reflect back the anger, the resentment Uh, the desire for payback that the former president continues to reflect on the trail, most especially concerned about issues like border security, the future of immigration policy in this country, and the cost of things, inflation, reflecting back to us that they're concerned about gas prices, even though they're starting to come down, but also being able to own a home or even affordably rent an apartment. You talk to Ron DeSantis' supporters. They generally agree with those views. But in the back of their minds, they know that Donald Trump can't necessarily win a general election. So they're looking for someone else who can do that. Whether or not there are enough of those people here in Iowa is the big question for the Florida governor. And I've been most struck by Nikki Haley supporters who reflect back what we're seeing in the polling this morning. They're not angry. They're concerned about the future of the world, concerned that the president is allowing things in Ukraine and the Middle East and Asia to spiral out of concern or out of control. They're concerned that Washington is needlessly spending money in a word they're concerned about. The chaos, which is the word she uses so Mm -hmm. frequently as she did there in her conversation with Tony and one that appears to be resonating here in the last few hours.
0: Bob Costa, I know uh, you were in court uh, earlier in the week with Mr. Trump and our polling shows those legal issues are a net positive for him with voters. Is the Trump campaign banking on that?
8: Margaret, good to be with you. Usually in the closing stretch of the Iowa caucuses, there's an ideological debate inside the Republican Party, a standoff over the future of the GOP. But instead, we're seeing this explosion of grievance among Trump supporters. And inside the high command of the Trump campaign, they're playing to that. And when I spoke to former President Trump in recent days in lower Manhattan, I said, how do you see the campaign versus the courtroom? And he said, Bob, the campaign is the courtroom. He will keep making these appearances, playing to his supporters and saying that he is with them. He's standing against a, an establishment he perceives as the enemy and that he hopes and his officials hope will fuel his campaign in the coming weeks and if he makes it to the general election.
0: Major Garrett, you've covered a number of campaigns and the adage from, from pun- pundits is, always, oh, national security doesn't really matter to voters. But I want you to listen to something Donald Trump was asked last night in Iowa
1: the world is in chaos what happened with yemen and the missile strikes the last few days ukraine palestine we don't even know where the secretary of defense is right now are we on the brink of world war three
3: i think we're the closest that we've ever been and you know joe this won't be a regular war this is not going to be as i say army tanks running back and forth shooting each other these are weapons of mass destruction the likes of which nobody's ever seen i've seen i've seen them and uh this is obliteration. This is not a world war like we are used to. World War One, World War II were terrible, horrible. Uh, this is uh, so much bigger than that. This is, you know, a, a, like annihilation.
0: I've seen him. Major Garrett, sounds like Trump is saying, I alone can fix it.
9: So I've been covering Donald Trump since 2015. And my conversations way back then, Margaret, reminded me of something that he's always possessed a fear and a fascination about nuclear weapons and nuclear war. A constant obsession with his, how to avoid it. So that's one part of that answer. It's a legitimate one, most American presidents in the nuclear age have felt that as well. But Trump is acutely fascinated by it and fearful of it. That's one of the reasons he began those negotiations, though unsuccessful with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. But this is also an answer about a larger context in American political life. If you're not a Trump supporter, are you anxious about the future? Do you believe a reelected President Biden would be strong enough, fit enough, courageous enough to handle an unstable world? Trump is answering that. No, he won't. I will be. You may not like me, but I will be strong and I will be vigorous. That's one of the messages he's trying to convey with that annihilation answer.
0: I mean, it's just chilling, Amy, to hear some of the language that we are talking about being normalized on the campaign trail. You said earlier this week it's kind of hard to get excited about Iowa in a contest where the frontrunner is ahead by just so much. Is this just a glide path to Donald Trump securing the nomination of the party?
10: Well, given the numbers that you all put out today, it sure looks that way. And every poll that we've seen out of Iowa suggests that as well with the one road bump in the way being New Hampshire, in part because the New Hampshire electorate looks so different from Iowa's and then from the next state that has significant primary, which is South Carolina. There you have, in those two states, more evangelical, more conservative Republican. New Hampshire, more independent voters. That's the Nikki Haley voter right there in New Hampshire. So you can see her do well in a state like New Hampshire, but that's not going to give her the sort of momentum to go into a place like South Carolina that is going to look much more like what we're seeing in Iowa.
0: Despite it being her home state.
10: Despite it being her home state, it is still where Donald Trump has a great deep well of support. And I think the the fascinating thing, when you look back, thinking about where we were at this point in 2020, and the debate on the Democratic side was all about who could beat Donald Trump. Right. And that's how, even though he lost those first couple of contests, Joe Biden was able to come back and win because he was seen as the most electable. It is very clear who the most electable candidate is in every poll, not just the CBS poll. And that's Nikki Haley. And that has done her no good, in part because Republican base believes that Trump is going to win anyway, that he won the last time around. And when it's that close, which it was
0: in 2020, it's just going
10: to take a few thousand more votes to put it in Trump's
7: direction.
0: Ed O'Keefe, you cover the Biden White House. Does the Biden campaign believe they have a problem?
7: Not yet, necessarily, Margaret. They, like our polling, like just about everyone else that's monitoring this closely, believe that when all is said and done, former President Trump will be the Republican nominee. And they look at these numbers that continue to suggest that Nikki Haley's more electable and ask the question, at least some of them do. Well, OK, let's say she's the nominee. Where's Donald Trump at that point? What is he doing to help her or potentially hurt her by raising concerns? He would splinter the party, they believe. Ultimately, however, they are of the belief that most Americans, despite those that loyally watch us here on Face the Nation, aren't necessarily paying attention to this yet, don't believe that Donald Trump will ultimately prevail. It looks like he might, and once that binary choice is before the American people again, the White House believes they'll be able to win it. But they caution, it's not about today. Polling today doesn't matter. It's the polling next fall. And on Mm -hmm. Election Day, they are only going to be concerned about going forward.
0: Major Garrett, what would a second Trump presidency look like?
7: Well, I guess the underlying part of your question,
9: Margaret, is would it be a threat to democracy? That's certainly something the president's, that is to say, President Biden's campaign has leaned very much into in the last week. The bigger question for the country is, do we have a common definition of the future of democracy. And our polling and everyone else's polling, but particularly our polling suggests Republicans are now defining democracy and its orientation to Trump quite differently than the rest of the country. We've talked about this rallying effect, this idea that prosecutors are somehow being too vigorous with former President Trump, whatever his underlying conduct was. Republicans have been rallying and moving in that direction consistently since January 6th. They're hardening (laughs) around support of Trump, seeing his grievances as their grievances. And when Trump talks about retribution and doing something on behalf of himself and not the American Democratic experiment, Republicans are rallying to that. So in that context, Margaret, democracy, constitutional republic, all our traditions and all our institutions seem to me and feel more threatened if there is a Trump reelection. That's a conjecture, but it is not a conjecture in the dark. It's a conjecture that aligns perfectly with our polling and everyone else's.
0: So Bob, if this isn't a traditional campaign, what do we need to expect from the candidates in terms of what they're actually going to be able to do to secure the nomination?
8: Look for Trump to try to assert himself as someone who's comfortable with power and wants a revival. Back in 2016, many of his allies told me he stumbled into the presidency. Now, years later, they say he's ready to use executive power in a sweeping way, mass deportations, shake up U.S. foreign policy. This election is shaping up to be a reckoning on American democracy. And what a Trump return to the White House would say about the United States. But so many of Trump, Trump's rivals at this point are just not ready to wade into those waters. They're trying to stick to their talking points. And we'll see if that's enough for them to catch up.
0: Gentlemen, thank you for joining us from Iowa. Amy Walter, thank you for being here with us, helping us make sense of it all. Base Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us.
11: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: We're joined by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Senator, good to have you here. Good to
12: be with you, Margaret.
0: In person. You've known Joe Biden for a very long time. You've known Donald Trump. What does Biden need to do to reverse this trend?
12: Well, I think basically speaking to the American people on what has been accomplished, what they want to accomplish, mistakes they've made, and how they're going to correct them. People just want to know the truth. You know, if you made a mistake, say, hey, we made a mistake, we tried something and it didn't work out. I think they've moved too far to the left. They need to come back to the center or center left. That's where America is. America is between the centers, center left, center right. That's where most of the, of the voters are and that's where the decisions on who's going to be elected, that's where it's going to happen. It's not going to happen from the extremes, but we're playing off of the extremes. Mm-hmm. That's what people are just worn out. Enough is enough.
0: Well, and you've said enough for you. You are leaving Congress. Right. Um, I've but tried
12: everything I could. I'm going on my 14th year, and I've done everything. I can tell you, we cannot fix it. Well, you haven't it.
0: tried everything. You know that question.
12: <laughs> well, we cannot fix it in Washington. It won't be mm-hmm. fixed because the business model. And that's what my daughter Heather and I put together, Americans Together. Right. And the reason for that is trying to give people hope in the middle that they have a voice and a place to go.
0: Well, you said you're trying to travel the country yeah. and suss out this moderate group. Where, where do you direct them? what do you do you have them well, right now this this is this is, not,
12: this is not a short game this is a long game right if you're going to get it's, it's a character of the person you send to Washington, who you're voting for and within your state or your district and if that person has the character to where they put uh, they put their country before their party yeah, they put uh, their service before themselves, all these types of things, and people can detect that, but they have to ha- get that person in the game and right now, with the gerrymandering, the way it's con- controlled you know, 380 390 districts are already cooked. You've got uh, uh, the whole thing as far as the primaries, uh, how could, you could change those to more of a majority primary, uh, mm-hmm. an open primary, if you will. It gets a person who doesn't have the political backing maybe or the fun financing, but has the best character and the best ideas, gives them a chance. There's many ways it can be done, but it has to be really pushed from the outside. The business model in Washington is too darn good for the Democrat and Republican parties. They're doing too good. They're getting rewarded for bad behavior and too much money's coming
0: in. You're trying to push President Biden towards the middle. I'd love to. You, you've said he's been pulled so yeah. far to the left, to the extreme left, as far as the liberal, makes no sense at all. It's not the person we thought was going to bring the country together. That's pretty harshly critical. Um, well, I'm, I mean, con- it's constructive
12: him? criticism. Uh, let me let me make very clear. Uh, I love my country too much to vote for Donald Trump. I love my country too much and I think it would be very detrimental to my country. I want to make sure that people have a choice, but also understanding the person with the character and this and that. So we have to see what happens on Super Tuesday. I think by then you're going to know who's in the game, where we stand.
0: By March. And you expect more I, I th- I to think, enter the race?
12: I think no, I think that we'll find out. You just have to find out what's going on. If there's a movement, if there's a movement for third party, I think is what you're asking about. Mm-hmm. Can that movement make a difference. I'm not going to be a spoiler, never have been, and never will be. But people want options, or they want change. Mm -hmm. So you gotta see what comes. And by then, I think things will hopefully sort itself out.
0: So you're not closing the door on running yourself. (laughs) You get asked this question. (laughs) I'm gonna do
12: everything I can Mm -hmm. to save my country. And I'll do whatever it takes. I'll help whoever, and I'll support whoever that I think can best help this country come back to the common sense, sensible middle. Which is center left, center right, working together yeah. with a majority. You can't govern from extremes.
0: You said the president could fix mistakes. What's the mistake you think he's? Well, making? I think
12: the border. The border has to be fixed. And you know what? If Congress- there are talks
0: in the Senate to do just that, I'm on board with what I'm, the White House
12: Margaret, is proposing. I agree with you. We were told before Christmas we're going to stay here and get this done. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, okay, you can go home now because we're getting some language done now. We're writing, putting putting pen to it. We're going to come back, and as soon as we come back—that was last week—we'll have something. Now, this is the second week. This is the greatest crisis we're facing right now is the border, and it's dangerous. And if Congress cannot do its job because the perfect is the enemy of the good, it's just not perfect enough for the Democrats or Republicans or it's gone too far or not mm-hmm. far enough, the president has to step forward and declare an emergency. I don't believe there should be any more paroles at the border until we can get a handle on what's going on. And it is, a, it's just extremely bad right now.
0: Uh, Senator, you were saying you think the president needs to do more on the border. The president did say this weekend he wants to make ma- major changes. He has negotiations going on. Are you saying put aside that deal and just take an executive action?
12: Put a deadline. If it doesn't happen this week, this is such a crisis and it's a dangerous crisis at the border. The president might have to take executive actions, declaring a crisis, national crisis, a national crisis at the border and do what needs to be done to shut that border down and secure it until we can get a handle or until legislature, the legislature can come to an agreement. Mm -hmm. But leaving it open, thinking that we're all going to be kumbaya and it's all going to come together, uh, is not the uh, prudent course to take, I believe.
0: So you think he needs to get more directly involved because this is what Republicans say has to get done to unlock Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan aid.
12: I'm just saying by the crisis at the border is the greatest crisis we face in America, the dangerous crisis that we're facing now. And I believe very strongly that that border needs to be secured, and to secure it, close it down, if you can't get a pathway that legislature agrees on. I think this week would be a deadline because we were told before Christmas it would be done. We were told come back, it would be done. Now the second week of coming back and still not done, and who knows?
0: You are on the Armed Services Committee. Mm -hmm. Um, As of this morning, Secretary of Defense is still in the hospital. Uh, we learned he, this week he's receiving treatment for prostate cancer. He's been in the hospital since January 1st. The president didn't find out about the cancer diagnosis until, we were told, mm-hmm. January 9th.
10: Right.
0: A Democratic congressman, Seth Moulton, former Marine, says this is a breakdown in the chain of command. Austin should be fired. Do well, there's, there's,
12: there's definitely been a breakdown. We need to find out more on the facts. We will this week. We're supposed to be briefed on that this week to find exactly what happened. But let me just say my, my prayers are with Lloyd Austin and his family. Uh, for his speedy recovery and full recovery. Here's a man's dedicated his entire life to the defense of our country. If a mistake was made, we can fix that. Was there a breakdown? And basically it was we were left rudderless? I don't believe so, but we'll find out. Decisions can be made later, but you don't change right now and you don't throw a person out mm-hmm. that has dedicated his entire life and done a good job of giving everything he has to it. He said he's he made a mistake. He shouldn't right. have done it. Okay? President Biden
0: said it was a lapse in judgment.
12: Most certainly. But and in
0: terms of national security, the fact that there seems to be this confusion or lack of communication with the White House by the Pentagon, does that trouble you? Well, let
12: me just say this. We saw the, the attacks on the Hootie's back. OK, that's been a coalition being put together. That took coordination. Somebody's still operating. OK, even in this lapse that we see. But before I'm going to draw fire on that or make a decision, I want to see the re- the rest of the facts. Mm-hmm. And is corrections being made. And has it been there for some time and it just happened to come up, come up at this time when a person who's very private made a mistake, thought he had a very simple procedure, or it wasn't as serious as it turned out to be. So we can fix all that. But here again, his health and well-being is what I'm most concerned about, and his dedication to our country. Mm-hmm. I think we owe something to make sure we have the facts. Before we put politics, politics is always going to ask, go for someone's head, it always does. And this toxic atmosphere is what people don't like anymore. Yeah. So just have some civility to how we handle, handle oh. ourselves and our con- concerns we have for people.
0: We are definitely for <laughs> civility. Senator, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Margaret. We'll be right back. Ah. The comfort
11: of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
0: Today marks 100 days since Hamas led a brutal attack on Israel. Our Charlie Daggett reports on the growing conflict in the Middle East.
7: Just
3: days after the massive U.S.-led Red Sea assault involving American F-18 fighter jets and British typhoons taking off from Cyprus, Houthi militants carried out drills in Yemen yesterday, less a serious military flex than a show of defiance. Former Major General Amos Yadlin was the head of Israel's military intelligence and a former fighter pilot who flew several missions behind enemy lines.
6: I have a suspicion that it's not enough, that it's not enough to destroy the capabilities. It may affect the intentions.
3: The very escalation the U.S. had sought to avoid, a direct military confrontation with Iranian-backed adversaries. Four months into this conflict that started over the tiny strip of land that is Gaza has now expanded to a more global arena, including here on the Red Sea. Retaliation for weeks of Houthi attacks on commercial ships in solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. 100 days into that war, the fight rages on. Almost 24,000 people have been killed, according to Hamas health officials, many children among them. Winter now piling misery on the hundreds of thousands of displaced residents, hungry, and aid agencies say some facing starvation. Amid growing international condemnation that the toll is too high, Israeli officials say the world needs reminding. Hamas started this fight. This morning, thousands gathered in Tel Aviv for 100 seconds of silence, including the families of those still held hostage not knowing whether their loved ones are even still alive. Amid increasing pressure for even a temporary ceasefire, Margaret, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed the nation last night, saying, we will continue this war until the end. We're on a path to victory and we won't stop until we achieve victory.
0: Charlie Daggett in Israel. We're joined now by... Admiral John Kirby of the White House National Security Council, it's good to have you here. Thank you. Um, we received that report about two Navy SEALs missing off the coast of Somalia. They were attempting to board a small ship believed to be carrying weapons from Iran to Yemen. What is the
13: status? As far as we know, that, that search is still ongoing for those, uh, for those two sailors that uh, are in the water. Um, and uh, we hope to get some updated information today but we're obviously watching this very closely.
0: But this is directly related to what is going on.
13: This was not related to the strikes in Yemen. This was normal interdiction operations that we've been conducting for some time to try to disrupt that flow of weapon supplies uh, to Yemen. So it's not not related to the strikes that we took against the Houthis.
0: But still, in this region, the Houthis, as you just mentioned there, say the motivation here is they're trying to get back at Israel's allies. That's a justification they're using for attacking some of these ships. Does the U.S. assess that these coalition strikes will deter the Houthis, or are you bracing for retaliation and an open-ended conflict?
13: I think it'd be Pollyannish for us to think that there couldn't or may not be some sort of retaliatory strike by the Houthis. We're watching this very, very closely. We've we've taken the requisite uh, necessary precautions in the region to make sure we're ready for that, if that should occur. These strikes were meant to disrupt and degrade their ability to conduct these strikes. Um, And so we think... That we had good effect on that. We're still assessing uh, the battle damage assessment of those strikes, but we think we had good effect. Uh, we'll see what happens. The, the Houthis have a choice to make here now, Margaret. Uh, and the right choice is to stop these reckless attacks. And no matter what they say, this is not about uh, punishing Israel. I mean, one of the ships they took a shot at yesterday was Panamanian flagged; and it was taking Russian oil. It had nothing to do with Israel.
0: So it it may be an open-ended conflict. We don't know if deterrence has been established.
13: Nobody wants a conflict with the Houthis. We're not looking for a conflict with Yemen here. We're trying to get these attacks to stop.
0: So you used to work very closely with the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin. Um, And as we were just talking about, everyone is hoping he pulls through this battle with cancer uh, healthy and strong. But why is he still in the hospital? if he's able to work? why does he still need to be at walter reed
13: well again i'm not I'm not his physician, so I want to be careful, but my understanding is that his is he's following his doctor's orders and in consultation with their views in terms of what kind of additional care he needs um, and we'll we'll see you know when he can get released, but obviously they still feel like he he may need some additional care. I understand uh, that uh, part of that is just physical therapy
0: so okay. Does the president talk to him on a daily basis? Because I think one of the things that surprised a lot of people knowing what a tinderbox the Middle East is, Europe is, and the concern about China was how infrequently there was direct contact between the White House and the defense secretary for that entire period of time at the end of December through January.
13: There's routine, regular communications between the president and the secretary of defense, as well, as well as well the secretary of state. Uh, and, and normally, like, for instance, the, some of the strikes we took on Christmas Day, Christmas night, and then a few days later were pre-approved. Secretary Austin was part of that discussion. He was part of the discussion from his hospital room when we took these strikes against these Houthi sites uh, just a couple of nights ago. I mean, he's actively involved and engaged. Uh, And I think it's important for people to remember that the cabinet officials don't have to sit and talk every single day to make every decision. A lot of the work that gets done in national security is done at the staff level.
0: Right. But there is a chain of command here. Of course there And the commander-in-chief is. didn't know that his defense secretary was this ill.
13: And that's a problem. And the president has spoken to that. That That is not the way it's supposed to be. It's certainly uh, something we need to get more answers to. And the Pentagon's investigating this, and, and uh, we'll see what comes out of that. But that, that is not the way the process is supposed to work. That is right. Um, you
0: know, as we acknowledge here, it's been 100 days since that Hamas attack on Israel that sparked uh, where we are yeah. now. Yeah. Um, Does the U.S. need to press Israel harder to move into the low-intensity conflict they say they intend to move towards?
13: I can tell you, and Secretary Blinken just came from the region, uh, that we have been talking to them intensely about a transition to low intensity operations. We believe it's the right time for that transition. uh, And we're talking about doing that. Now they have done some precursory steps to try to kind of get to that point. They're pulling some troops out. They're relying a little less on airstrikes. uh, But we believe that, look, any military campaign You go through phases. And the next logical phase here, as they have put pressure on Hamas leadership, is to get to lower intensity operations, more targeted, more precise raids, less airstrikes. Uh, We believe it's time to make that transition, and we have had that conversation with them.
0: Time to make that transition because it's now a detriment to U.S. national security to be giving them cover for this long?
13: Because it's the right thing to do in this military campaign against Hamas. They have put pressure on leadership. They have gone after that leadership. They have been able to go after some of the resourcing and infrastructure that Hamas uses to conduct these attacks. We're not saying let your foot up off the gas completely and don't keep going after Hamas, it's still a viable threat. They have every right and responsibility to go after that. It's just that we believe the time is coming here very, very soon for a transition to this lower intensity phase.
0: Right. Um, Because, you know, even Democratic senators like Chris Ben-Holland have said the quote in Axios is at every juncture, the Netanyahu government has given Biden the finger that the White House is just being told we don't care.
13: We have had intense conversations with the Israelis. We know that those conversations have had effects, Margaret. I mean, uh, they went into North Gaza with a much smaller force than they were originally planned to because we gave them some advice about what our experiences were in places like Mosul and Fallujah. Uh, we, uh, we've we seen them now establish humanitarian corridors. We've seen them drop leaflets, telling people where to go or not to go. I mean, that's basically telegraphing your punches. and not, not a lot of modern militaries would do that. I'm not saying it's perfect, and we're certainly not— walking away from the need to reduce civilian casualties and get more humanitarian aid in. It's getting in a couple hundred trucks a day, not enough. And we're going to keep having those conversations with them.
0: Thank you so much for coming and joining us in studio. We'll be back in a moment.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
4: With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: We go back now to the Republican presidential primary contest and candidate Asa Hutchinson, who is joining us from Des Moines. Uh, You were, sir, a two-term governor. You helped found Homeland Security. You ran the DEA. You were a member of Congress. But Donald Trump has remade your party. Um, How do you define who your supporters are?
4: Well, first of all, you're correct. Uh, He has redefined uh, the Republican Party and not in a good way. And uh, whenever you look at what I'm trying to do is draw attention to the fact that Donald Trump is a a weak candidate for us uh, going into the general election. I think the CBS poll that you uh, cited today reflects that. Uh, the one person that ought to enjoy that poll is Joe Biden, with Trump having that kind of a lead in the primary. My responsibility and other candidates is to take on the front runner if you don't agree that he's the right one. We've been doing that, and there might be a short-term price for that, but long-term, fear uh, fear-mongering, and grievances only take you so far. And so that is uh, the sign of a weak candidate as you go further into this election year. So the voice is critically important uh, to alert people that we can't mislead our voters and say January 6th was uh, somehow uh, a patriotic act. It was an attack on our capital, the rule of law and Congress, and we cannot buy into that misleading by Donald Trump.
0: So, sir, our our CBS polling shows 81 percent of Republican primary voters say they agree with the statement that immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country. Uh, What do you think of that statement and and why is that resonating with self-identified Republican voters?
4: Well, because there's incredible concern about the border. Uh, As you talk to voters here in Iowa, their number one concern is economy, equal to that is border security. And so uh, I don't like his inflammatory language. I would never use that. Uh, Immigrants are important to our country, but we have to have the legal process. And people are upset uh, with the Biden administration and the poorest border. That's why I can make the case effectively that I'm the only one running for president who's actually had that responsibility of securing the border. That resonates as well. And I would rather talk about it in terms of what we need to do versus uh, the pejorative rhetoric that really uh, misleads people and hurts people.
0: Fentanyl is driving one of the deadliest drug drug crises in this country's history. Um, and most of that, I think, you know, comes in through those legal ports of entry into the United States. But most of your competitors are squarely blaming China, squarely blaming Mexico. They do have roles here, as you know. But how would you deal with the overall crisis in America?
4: Well, uh, you have to do it by partnering with Mexico to go after the cartels who are responsible for bringing the fentanyl in. They should be declared foreign terrorist organizations. But your point is very well taken. Uh, they're smuggling that through the ports of entries. And I saw Senator Manchin talking about, we need to close down the border. What's he talking about? Is he talking about the ports of entry or between the ports of entry? Mm-hmm. And surely you don't want to shut down all of our commerce. It would hurt America if we did that. And so we got to use better technologies. And you've got to partner with Mexico and use economic pressure to accomplish that. And then we, have, we cannot neglect the importance of educating our young people about the risk of buying a Percocet pill on the street and how that could be laced with fentanyl. Yeah. And we've got to increase our drug treatment resources. All of that's a part of my plan, based upon my experience as head of the DEA.
0: When you say economic pressure on Mexico, are you talking about shutting down temporarily? Uh, transit between the two, as President Biden had to do in December, or are you talking about putting tariffs on Mexico like Donald Trump says he wants to do?
4: Well, neither. We're going to be returning uh, manufacturing back from uh, China, and uh, the president can help lead and say some of that's going to wind up in Mexico, and our economic partnership's important, but as president, I will discourage that return of manufacturing to Mexico if they don't support the rule of law and partner with us. So there's a different, different levels of economic pressure. And sure, I think that we uh, have to take strong measures to get their attention to mm-hmm. help us. But I think you can do that without hurting American businesses that rely upon that cross-border commerce.
0: All right, Asa Hutchinson, thank you for joining us today. And we turn now to Governor and Nikki Haley supporter, Chris Sununu, who joins us from Newfields, New Hampshire. Good to have you back with us. You bet. Uh, So, Governor, Donald Trump won New Hampshire's primary in 2016. It legitimized his campaign. It helped launch him to the presidency. He's leading again in the New Hampshire polls. So is this really just about Nikki Haley potentially coming in second place?
14: No, no, not at all. Look, I mean, the media has been, has told the world that Donald Trump was going to win every state and run away with this. Um, It wasn't even going to be a race. It obviously is a race. Uh, Nikki Haley is the only candidate surging in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Um, You know, the fact that uh, if Nikki can post a, a strong second here, that would that's great, and we're going to do that. But now there's even a chance of kind of shattering the presumptions that Donald Trump's going to run away with this, and that happens right here in New Hampshire. She can challenge him to beat to win this state, go into her, her, her home her home state with a uh, nearly a month of campaigning there. Uh, she knows how to win there, uh, and that again just breaks down this uh, assumption by the whole country that it's it, that it's it's Trump's to to be had. So yeah. by doing that, you kind of hit a reset, if you will, on the entire campaign. network narrative and and put Nikki
0: right at the top of the heat. So you um, said recently that if your candidate doesn't win the nomination, you would still support the party nominee. But back in June, when you said you personally decided not to run for president, you said if Trump wins, Republicans will lose again. He didn't deliver on his promises to drain the swap, secure the border and still fiscal responsibility. He has numerous investigations. He's peddling conspiracy theories. So why do you no longer have such a strong conviction?
14: No. No, I, I absolutely do. Look, I, I, all that stands today. you would support him I would support him, but yeah, I never said I wouldn't support him. I, I ne- we never said we wouldn't support the Republican nominee, but I understand no, but he's the weakest he would be candidate to go up against Donald Trump. Yeah, but, I'm, but I didn't say I wasn't going to support him. Republicans are going to support him. This would be a nail-biter race come November. With Nikki Haley at the top, she wins by 10, 10 points. It's a fundamentally uh, different argument because you get the Senate, you get the House seats, you get the governorships, you get all the way down the ticket. The Republicans win. Donald Trump is simply the weakest candidate. Um, and so, again, that's the opportunity that Nikki brings to the table.
0: Okay. I'm sorry, you're saying you would still support the weakest candidate even though it would hurt your party in down-ballot races just to be consistent? No, Margaret, we're talking about the
14: general election here. Yeah. Trump versus Biden, right? You think I'm going to vote for Joe Biden? What, with what he's done to this country, with what he's done with, with inflation and crushed middle, middle American families, I think Trump's the weakest nominee and would have a, a tough time beating Biden for sure. But we're going to support the Republican nominee. But at the end of the day, that's why Nikki Haley's surging. That's why so many people are getting behind. That's why, again, you can sit, I tell the folks in Iowa and New Hampshire, you can sit on the couch and wait to see what happens, or you can go caucus for Nikki Haley in Iowa. You can make sure you vote in New Hampshire. The higher the voter turnout, the better chance there is of, of defeating Donald Trump. And that happens. Don't wait for a court case. Don't wait for external factors that aren't going to happen. That's going to happen uh, at, the, at the ballot box. And that's the opportunity over the next 10 days to turn this entire narrative around that Trump's just going to run away with this thing. Nikki's the, the opportunity for the Republican Party.
0: So um, 2022 was the most dangerous year for overdoses in New Hampshire since 2017, which was the same year Donald Trump called your state a drug-infested den. What do you think, on on the serious matter of addiction in this country, what is happening in your state that has had addiction specifically um, now with fentanyl only continue to be a problem through these administrations?
14: Well, yeah, again, you're you're looking at small data. Since 2017, fentanyl-driven deaths in this country have have exceeded 60% increase. We've gone down. We've actually gone down. Uh, and and our numbers will be lower than 22 even again this year. So our model is actually breaking the national trends. Our model is one where we provide rural access to care. We're not just pumping more money into old systems. We've rebuilt our entire system around it. We used to be one of the number one, number two, uh, in terms of drug and fentanyl-driven deaths in the country. We're now around 23, 24. So again, we have a lot of work to do, the entire country does, but understand the entire country has skyrocketed where we've actually gone down and broken that mold. I think we have a terrific model here. It's working. It's going to take time. You then implement that around mental health services as well. You implement that around all the other services. The the majority of services in this country are focused on the inner cities. It's wrong. It's not the the best way to do it. You have to have that rural access to care, especially around fentanyl and overdoses and um, uh, Mm -hmm. xylazine, all these other new drugs that are kind of coming onto the market. We've been on the forefront of that stuff.
0: Governor, we wish you luck with that. Thank you for your time this morning. We'll be right back. That's it for us today, thank you for watching for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Elections and Surveys Executive Director Anthony Salvanto, New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, former Governor of Arkansas and Republican Presidential Candidate Asa Hutchinson, and John Kirby, Strategic Coordinator for the White House National Security Council. The Executive Producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus.
1: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
15: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
11: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and Host of the Money Watch Podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you